All right, all right, all right, here we go. Have your Bibles, grab them, John chapter 3, verse 16. Start a new series uh, this morning, Words to Live By. We're going to go through uh, the, uh, not the only verses Christians should know, but 10 verses that Christians should know. And uh, we're going to kind of walk through those uh, word for word. Um, and uh, I thought with it being VBS week as well as a, a verse that literally every Christian and person in America probably knows, uh, that these girls on the last minute notice could come up here and uh, uh, read it for us, right? Are y'all ready? So John three sixteen. Good job. All right. See ya. Give me some. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. <laughs> Whose kid is that? Now y'all go back to class now. Don't be wandering the halls. <laughs> oh, man, good to be here. So John 3.16 this morning. Uh, one of the things I hear people say a lot uh, especially if they've heard somebody else kind of quote a lot of scripture or cite a lot of scripture in a conversation. You know, they'll say, oh, well, you know, Ezekiel says this, you know, Jeremiah, whatever. They'll hear that and they'll say, man, I wish I knew the Bible like that. Man, I wish I could recall verses and kind of know kind of the verses all over the place like that to be able to call those things to mind in conversation. But I hope them say, man, I wish I could do that. I just can't do that. I just can't do that. And I want to say to you, that's not true. That's not true. You can do that. You can do that. You can know the Bible, but it's not going to happen overnight. You don't, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and then all of, all of a sudden have all of this knowledge. You have to start somewhere. You have to start intentionally learning and intentionally memorizing the Scriptures. We want to memorize and to know the Bible and to know the Scriptures, not just for the sake of knowledge or to be able to call those things, but for the sake of our own encouragement Right? So like when we're facing difficult circumstances, difficult situations, different questions happening, we can call to mind those scriptures that we've got memorized to encourage us, to spur us on, to uh, answer a question that someone else is having doubts with or we're having doubts with and can remind us of some truth, to recenter ourselves in those moments. Um, but also we want to memorize the scriptures because when you know something by heart, when we use that language, we, we know it by heart. We say that because it actually is written on our very souls. And when you know something by heart, you can't help but be changed by it. When you know something by heart, you can't help but it form you just a little bit. And so when you rehearse something in your mind enough that it becomes known by heart, you've got it memorized, it becomes a part of you and you are changed by it. And what better to memorize than the Word of God and be changed by it. So over the next 10 weeks, we're going to be looking at 10 verses that every Christian should know. My hope that they would challenge you, um, and my hope is that, my, my challenge to you is that you would memorize these with me. That not only are you going to hear a sermon by it, but that after you've heard the sermon, that all week long, that you will work to memorize that verse and to learn it by heart. Rehearsing it in your mind to know it by heart. Now, there are a lot of tricks to memorizing. And uh, the, uh, I want to share with you the one that I use that I like best, uh, and that is to write the first letter of every word in the verse 
on a note card or on your hand or wherever you're going to see it, on a sticky note on your computer, wherever, and that as you look at it, you can read the verse by the, each letter that kind of recalls, okay, that's the next word, and so you can read it. So I want to give you an example. So here's a slide that kind of gives you an example of that. So that's John 3.16. Say it with me, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So a helpful tool uh, to help you memorize. Uh, if you got your own thing, do that. But that is something that might help you. Uh, and so my challenge is, now this week, you got it easy. You probably already have it done, okay? Uh, but next week, it'll be a little trickier. And so my challenge to you is to memorize next week's verse. Our verse this week does not need much uh, introduction. Uh, most of you know it. But you might only know it on a surface level. And you might because it's so common and so popular and you might not ever dug into it a little bit, and so that's what I want to do this morning, is that as we know this by heart, to let it change us a little more by diving a little deeper into this verse we all know so well. You know, most everyone who follows Jesus has at some moment in their life uh, begun to doubt, begun to question, does God really love me? Um, maybe because of some sin issue in your life, maybe because of some uh, tragedy in your life, maybe because someone hurt you, uh, someone failed you, uh, maybe because of some questioning or some, you know, thing that's got you questioning the truth, leads you to a place of asking, man, does God really love me? Could God really love me? Maybe you hear the whispers of the devil, he could never love you, look at you how you failed, look at you and how uh, you're so late to the game, you're so behind, or you've done this or whatever. Uh, and, and, man, could, could, is that true? Is that right? Does God really love me? I think sometimes it can be really comforting to read David in the Psalms as he writes and cries out through song, uh, asking God to be near to him. That God, don't forsake me. God, don't leave me. God, restore to me uh, the joy of my salvation. Show me your, your everlasting love again. Don't leave me. It's comforting because most of us have had those nights Lying in bed wondering, am I really yours? Am I really safe? Am I really changed? Am I really enough? Do you really love me? We can sympathize with David in those moments. And what I want to see today in, the, in John 3.16, as well as obviously many other verses in the Bible, but I want to see this simple but profound truth to us. That the reason we can know for certain that God loves us, that in this verse we can reason and know for certain that God does love us. In the midst of doubts, in the midst of questioning, in the midst of hard times, we can know. So we're going to break it down word for word. So right at the beginning, we read God. For God. When you, when you think about God, when we say the word God, what comes into your mind? I think we take for granted the idea that when I say God, that we all mean and think the same thing. That we're all on the same page. But in our increasingly pluralistic society, when I say God, a whole lot of different things come into people's minds. For some, when they hear the word God, they think of an old man in the sky with a long white beard, a sort of grandfatherly figure who is there to, to care and nurture. For others, when they hear the word God, they think of an angry, 
uh, man who has, wants to throw lightning bolts at people when they mess up. For others, when they hear God, they think of just the personification of love. And by love, all they mean is that it's accepting and there's no restraints and God never judges and he wants you to be you and whoever you want to be and whatever you want to do. And that's great and it's just like hippie God who just love everything. And the list goes on and on that when I say God, you think of something and it might be different than what I think. And so the question is, when we read in John 3.16, God, what do we mean specifically? What does the Bible mean specifically when it says God? A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about God? When we think about God, is our thinking based on the Bible? Is it solely based in the scriptures? Or is what we think about God based on my experience? Is it based on what I was taught by television, movies, my parents? Is it based on my emotions? Or is it even based on my desires of who I want God to be? Or what I think a God should be? What we think about God is the most important thing about us because it will shape everything else about our life. Everything else about our life is downstream from what we think about God. When we think about God, we want to make sure that we have a biblical version of God that comes into our minds. We, we do not serve a God who is behind the times, that's outdated. Rather, we serve the God who, is, who created time itself, whose truths and values are timeless. We don't serve a God created by man or in the likeness of man. Rather, we serve a God who created everything out of nothing. We don't serve a God who, has been, who needs to be visited in temples made by the hands of men. Rather, we serve a God who is omnipresent everywhere at once, always with us. We don't serve a God who sits back and watches the world unfold on the edge of his seat, wondering how the story is going to play out in the end. But rather, we serve an almighty God who is sovereign and in control and whose will always comes to pass. We do not serve a God who lets fallen, sinful, corrupt people determine for themselves what is right and wrong. But rather, we serve a holy God, a good God, a God who is just and whose every thought and every action is right. A God who does, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, come on, come on. We, just so y'all know, y'all got permission to, like, talk back. I like it. You know, it's a one-way conversation sometimes. Let's make it two-way. <laughs> we serve a God who does not allow evil to have its day, but will one day bring evil to an end, will bring sin to an end, and he will reign forever. We believe in a God who defines right and, law, right and wrong. His law is good, and all will be judged and laid bare according to what he says is right. We serve a God who is beautiful, who is majestic, who is mighty, who is holy, who is righteous, who is good, who is just, who is uncreated, and who is perfect in all his ways. You see, knowing God truly and rightly sets the stage for the rest of this verse. And I could preach an entire sermon series on who is God. I don't have the time to do that. But a wrong view of God and a lesser view of God distorts the rest of this verse. And really it renders the rest of this verse pointless. It makes it so fluffy, it's useless. It takes the hope out of it. But when we understand that we serve a God who is good and right and 
holy and does not allow sin to just have free reign. He doesn't let you define right and wrong. He defines right and wrong. And he's not corrupt. He's a good. He's going to judge everything. When you have that version, the biblical version of God in your mind, when you read God, it gives teeth to this verse. It gives depth to this verse. The right view of God gives this verse power. And so here is on a basic level what you need to know about God uh, going into this verse. That God is perfectly good. He cannot allow even the smallest sin to go unpunished. Or he would cease to be good and would not be just. Do you know what we call a judge in this world who allows criminals to go unpunished? We call them corrupt. A judge who takes a little money on the side or has his own visions of what is right and wrong and allows bad things, bad people to to go unpunished, we call him corrupt. But God has no corruption in him. God is the standard for absolute rightness, absolute truth, absolute correctness, and absolute wrong. And there is no wiggle room in the courtroom of God. That is the backdrop of what makes the next line so striking. For God so loved the world. When you understand who God is, it puts the rest of that in context. That he loved the world. You see, if God is so holy and so good and so just and so righteous, how is it that God could love the world? Because look at it. And when he uses the word world here, it's the Greek word cosmos, which means the entire creation, the entire universe. And every time John uses the word cosmos throughout his letter, it is always negative. It is looking down at the world. It is used to speak of how bad and how broken the world is. If you can read this in its proper context uh, of, of who God is, then when you read this, you should step back and think, man, how in the world could this God love this world? How could this holy, good, perfect, just Glowing majesty God love this broken, jacked up, messed up world. How could this big holy God love a world and me and all that's in it that's so broken? In many ways, I can't answer that question. I can't answer the question, why does God love the world? Why does God love me? Why does God love you? I don't know why. I don't know, uh, you know, uh, other than to say, that he's chosen to love you, that he's chosen to love the world, that he, he decided to love. Despite me and despite you, despite our brokenness, he has chosen to love us. To love you despite how broken you are, to love you despite how much you have broken his laws, to love you despite how much you have rebelled against him, insulted him, broken his heart, he has still yet chosen to love you. And I think it's important to point out here, we haven't done anything to deserve this love. We haven't even been mentioned in the verse yet, right? It's just been that God and has loved the world. We're not even mentioned yet. Other than our negative state that we exist in the world and we're no good. No, God here is initiating. He's taking the first step. He's coming toward us. He's choosing to love. Our salvation begins with God's mysterious choice to love us even while we are sinners. To love us even while we're broken. You see, God's love is not conditioned upon us. That is not, it's not that God's love is not waning and waxing based on how good we've been this week. 
His love for you is not growing and, and shrinking based on how well you've done, how much you've gone to church, or how holy you've been this week. And we see here that God's love is for the whole world, even though the world is sinful and bro- broken and fallen. The only thing I know to compare this sort of love to is the love that a parent has for its child. You know, and, and this is not obviously universally true, there's bad parents out there, but, but a good parent loves their kids so much that even when their kid makes terrible mistakes, even when their kids lie and manipulate them, even when their kids deceive them, even when their kid goes against all of the advice and all of the warnings the parents have pleaded with them to not do this stupid thing that you want to do, even when they do it anyway, even when they live a lifestyle completely against how you raise them, yet still you love them. Even when your heart breaks for what they're doing, you love them fiercely and you do anything for them. Why are parents like that toward their kids? Probably because we're creating the image of God and, and the image of our father. And so fathers and mothers love their kids like God loves us. When we sin, when we rebel against God, it grieves his heart. It breaks his heart. It breaks his heart because he loves us. And he doesn't want to see the things in our life that are destroying us. And he loves us not because of how good we've been, but because he's chosen to love us as his creation. And our sin doesn't make him stop loving us, just, because our lack, just like our lack of sin didn't make him start loving us. Rather, our sin breaks his heart because it destroys us. You see, God doesn't love us because we are so lovable, but because God is love. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable, but because he is love himself. It's not that God just thinks, man, those people down there are so cute. I just love them. It's not that he looks down at us and thinks, man. It's not like, you know, when you look at a little puppy like in a glass door at 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 a store and you're like, oh. It's not that. It's not that. God in his very nature. By his very existence and who he is in and of himself is love because God is Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons. Right? The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Three distinct persons who all love one another, but yet are one God. See, God in his very core is love. He loves in and of himself. That's why we say he is love. Not that he just loves, but he is it because it's in him. And that love, that love that he has for himself in himself is now he has chosen to direct it toward you. Not because you're so good or lovable, because he's so so full of love and has chosen to direct it toward you. You might say, you hear that, you might say, Brent, I hear that, but I don't deserve that love. I don't deserve that love. I've out-sinned it. I've done too much. I've done too wrong. I don't deserve it or I've come too late to the game. But you're wrong. You're wrong. He does love you, not because you deserve it. See, love that is earned can't be trusted. I want you to think about that. Love that is earned cannot be trusted because you might one day cease to have earned it. You've done something to to no longer deserve it, and therefore he takes it away. But love that is freely given is the only sort of love we can take refuge in and rest in. Love that is freely given 
already when we were broken and messed up is the only sort of love that we can rest in, knowing that, even, that we can't do any more to, to stop deserving it because we never deserved it to begin with. But you say, okay, Brent, you say that God loves me, and you can't really say why, but other than he's just chosen to love me. But where's the proof? How do I know that he loves me? We may not know why he's chosen to love us, but we can know that he actually does. We may not know the why, but we can know for certain that he does. So we said, God, so love the world that he gave his son. God loved the world, and therefore he acted and gave his son. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that God loves any one of us? Well, he said, I love you. Is that not enough? Those three simple words, I love you, can make your heart leap out of your chest, right? When you hear those words from, uh, from uh, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance for the first time, it leaps you out of your chest, right? When you hear your spouse say those words, when you hear a parent say those words to you, it can make you feel all sorts of warm fuzzies inside. And when God says he loves us, that feels good. It's nice. But how do we know it? How do we know they're not just empty words? How do we know that he means it? Imagine your family sitting around the dinner table and, and, and mom or dad asks to your kids, hey guys, how do you know that I love you? How do you know mom loves you? Mom, how, how, how do you, kids, how do you know dad loves you? What are they going to say? They're probably not going to say, well, they told us. They're most likely going to say, well, mom's always washing my clothes. Dad's always going to work. Mom goes to work. They're going to say, oh, dad takes it, mom and dad take me to our ball game. They go watch our games. They hang pictures of us up everywhere. They play with me in the backyard. Dad's always wrestling with me. Mom's always taking care of me when I cry. Mom holds me. What, they're going to point to not your words, but to the things that you do. Here's how I know mom and dad love me. Because of what they do for me. This or that. How do, how do, we, how do we know that God loves us? Not because he just said it, but because he's proven it through his actions. How do we know God loves us? Because he gave us his son. Because he gave us his son. How much he loves us is commensurate to and proven through the size of the gift he's given us. You see, he didn't just give us this leftover toy. You know, sometimes a sibling will be done with a toy. They'll say, hey, I'm going to wrap this up and give it as a birthday present. Oh, here's my old toy. The wheel's all jacked up on it. You know, it's kind of scuffed up and broken. It kind of hardly works. The batteries are dead. But here you go. I love you. And God doesn't do that. He doesn't give us this leftover used toy. He doesn't give us his leftovers. No, rather, he gives us his most prized most beloved, most cherished thing to him and the universe, his own son, and he gives that to us. What does that say about his love for you? You want to know how we can know for certain God loves us? It is that even though the world was bad and broken and rebelled against him, he gave up the thing that mattered the most to him, that he loved the most, in order to give us hope and eternal life and love. He didn't say, okay, if you guys promise, if you guys promise to clean your act up, he didn't say if you guys promise to get better, if you guys promise that you can prove to me that you can change, if you prove to me that you can deserve this gift, then I'll give it to you. No, he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't make us earn it. He doesn't make us deserve it. He doesn't make us prove ourselves. He loves us, and so he gave us the thing that we needed the most, which also was his most treasured, prized thing. And he didn't cling to it. You know how sometimes we can give a gift, but kind of give it a little bit reluctantly? You know, maybe it's like something that we've had for a long time passed down to us, or uh, it, it costs a lot or something. We kind of give it, but it's kind of like a, I want to give it to you, but I kind of want to keep it at the same time. You know what I'm saying? We can kind of do that. That's not what God does. He doesn't kind of like half-heartedly give it or kind of reluctantly give it. He doesn't give it a second thought. This is what you need. It's the thing that means most to me. That doesn't matter. Here you go. And he gives it. Hey, there's no hesitation. It reminds me of that moment in Les Mis. When Jean Valjean gets out of prison after 19 years, and Jean Valjean cannot imagine how to live his life any other way than through theft and crime. And he finds, he doesn't have anywhere to go, but he finds the kindness of a bishop who gives him dinner and a place to stay for the night. And while he is shocked and overwhelmed at the man's kindness, he still cannot help his stealing ways. And Jean Valjean, while, he, while the bishop is sleeping, bags up all the silverware, you know, actual silver, silverware and actual silver plates. And he leaves in the middle of the night, stealing from the man who gave him hospitality. But he's caught by the police and he's brought back to the bishop's home and says, hey, we, we found the man that, that, caught, that, that, that stole all these things from you. Well, the most surprising thing happens. The bishop comes out and he says, Valjean, you forgot the silver candlesticks as well. And he gives him these silver candlesticks and everything else and he sends them on his way. He didn't steal this, I gave it to him. And this act of giving up something valuable in an act of love and grace and kindness toward Valjean changes his life forever. Changes his life forever. He doesn't feel like he's got to steal anymore and he goes and he makes something better for himself. And if that's true, how much more should the love of God, of the universe, demonstrated through his giving, not of some silver candlesticks, but of the divine Son of God, despite the fact that we are like Valjean. We've broken all the rules. And yet God still gave us this great gift. God's love is proven to us, not just that he says, I love you, but because he demonstrates it through giving his son. He's demonstrated it, proven it, shown it through the giving of his son to us. But let us also understand what is meant by giving his son. It's not just that he said that he gave his son to the world to, to, hey, go hang out with them for a little bit. Go spend some time with them. It's not that he just said, hey, go teach them for a little bit and, and give them some more knowledge to help them out. He didn't just say, hey, go be an example for them a little bit. Go and, and live the way that I want you to live and I want them to live. Go show them. No. When it says that he gave his son, he's saying that he gave his son to be tortured, rejected, reviled, and executed in order to be your substitute. This holy God must judge sin or he's a corrupt judge. This holy God must punish evil or he is a corrupt God. And so if he just wipes away our sin in the dead of the night and says, you know what, it's not a big deal, then he's not a God that can be trusted by us. He's no better than, the, the, than judges who are bribed by the mob. 
But if God remains good as he has and he provides a way for our mistakes, our sins, our rebellion to be washed away as if they never happened so that we can enter his family and have eternal life. And the only way to do that is to provide a scapegoat, to, to provide a substitute, to provide someone who had never done anything wrong in order to take the punishment of us who have done everything wrong. He had to find someone who could do everything right and yet take the place of the condemned. Our place. You see, you and I deserve to be on that cross. You and I deserve the fires of a literal hell. You and I deserve the anger and righteous wrath of a holy God. But God loved you so much that even in your broken, rebellious state, he gave his most precious possession to be tortured and reviled and executed so that you and I could be brought back to him and have life forever. You see, God loved you so much, he sent his son to take your place on the cross. He let the thing he loved most endure what you deserved so that he could make you right with him. You see, the proof of God's love for you is not just that he said it. It's that he said it and then he acted on it. When you read the word in this verse, the word so, Sometimes people have tried to make the point that, oh, it's communicating for God so loved the world. It's like, oh, he so loved, he loved it a lot. Like it's so big, so much love. And while it's true that he loved us so big, that's not really what the word means here. It really probably shouldn't be translated that way to be the most clear. He didn't just so love us, but rather it means in this way he loved us. In this way. It really should probably read, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his son. God loved the world and he showed it in this way. In this way he loved you by sending his only son to take your place in hell on a cross to experience the wrath and anger and justice of God so that you didn't have to. God loved you and he sent his most prized possession to take your place as a substitute on the cross. You see, as you see see Jesus dying on the cross for you, you can know for certain that God loves you. In the midst, uh, on those days that you're doubting and you're wrestling, and those days that you're lying in your bed thinking, there's no way God could love me, and you hear the, the whispers of the evil one into your mind, that there's no way God could love you. You're too late to the game. You've sinned too big. You don't have all the answers. You don't, you don't have all the knowledge. There's no way God can love you. You don't do the things right. On those moments, you can know for certain that he does. Because you can take your mind back to, to Golgotha, to Calvary, the place of the skull, and you can look at a man hanging on a cross. And not just any man, but the God-man hanging on a cross, bloody and beaten and dying. And you can know that he's there for you. He's there for you because he loves you. Why else would you do that? Why else would you go through all of that when you could have just stayed in heaven and enjoyed the glories of the universe? Why else would you do that? But great, great, overwhelming love for you. You know how you know God loves you? It's not because he says, well, hey, you know, you, you just be you, do whatever you want, you be free and just, you know what, no. He loves you because he tells you the truth 
and how you've fallen short of the truth and how he's made a way for you to still get to him. This big almighty God loved the world despite its brokenness and proved it through the cross. But here's the question. If this is true, as we believe it is, that Jesus has died on the cross and he's made payment for your sin, he's been your substitute, he's traded places with you, and, and all that's true, well, why is it then that everyone just doesn't just go to heaven? Why is it that Jesus died? All right, we all get to go. Why, why is that not the case? Well, notice the next slide. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, doesn't stop there, Whoever believes, whoever believes. You see, we tend to focus on the word, who, who, you know, uh, whosoever here, which is an important word. It reminds us that anyone can come to Jesus, that it doesn't matter the color of your skin, your heritage, how much money you have, your social status, your criminal record, the party you vote for. Literally, anyone can come to Jesus. There is no more Barred access, which is an especially important thing in light of the Old Testament when the Jews alone were really the ones that seemed to have access to God and the rest of the world was in darkness. That's changed now. Everyone, whosoever, can come and know God personally, be brought into his family, and have eternal life. But like I said, just because Jesus died doesn't mean everyone's getting in. There's a stipulation. What is it? While Jesus' death is here and it's available to everyone for their sins to be forgiven, you must believe. It's whoever believes. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. Not just everyone, but everyone who believes. Everyone has access. Everyone has the opportunity. Everyone has the ability. But you must do it. See, the blood of Jesus will not cover your sins until you believe in him. Your parents' faith does not save you. Your grandparents' faith does not get you in. Now, I, I want to be clear about one part of this. The word in, believe in him, is l more literally into him. It's into him. We are to believe into Christ. Well, what, what in the world does that mean? Well, the Bible tells us that even the demons believe, right? They believe and shudder. And so there's more than just believing that he exists. There, there are lots of people that believe Jesus existed. That's not enough. They, it's, more, they gotta, it's more than just believing he's real. It's more than just having the mental capacity to understand his existence. We need more than just casual American belief that there is a God. We must instead trust in Christ. Placing our trust and our hope and our lives into Christ. What does that mean? It means that I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my life is it's a state in rebellion against God. And I know that Jesus' death for me is my only hope to be made right with God. Not my good works. Not me being a good person. Not my own belief even. But I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace. And Jesus is my only way out. And so I, I put my faith and trust into Christ. I give my life over to him, trusting his ability to forgive me and love me, trusting him alone with that. It's not just believing he's real and believing he's my only hope to be saved. My only hope to be made right with God. Guys, let me say this, uh, and I hope this to be helpful. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian. 
Just like being in a garage doesn't make you a car. You can be a good person, a moral person, a church-going person. You could serve in VBS, give all kinds of money, be here every week, love people, care for people, serve people, and enjoy the whole thing. But if you have not placed your faith into Christ, laid your life into him and said, you are my only hope, not my goodness, nothing about me, but only you. If you've not done that, you're on a highway to hell, deserving the justice and wrath of God. He's good to do it. God is good to punish sin. He's right. We don't want to serve a God who doesn't punish evil. And we're evil. We're broken. But whoever means that you're not too late. Whoever means you're not too bad. Whoever means there's nothing barring your entrance other than you. You're the only one standing between you and God. God has made the way clear and you are the only obstacle in your path. Your pride, your arrogance, whatever it is, is the only thing standing between you and God. And all you got to do is throw that away and jump into his arms and believe that he alone can save you. And then everything will change. Y'all know what I'm talking For many of you in this room, you've done that and everything has changed. Amen? But for some of you, you haven't. And you must believe. Not just that God exists, not just generically, you must believe that he is your only hope. And throw yourself on his mercy. Finally, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. Not everyone, but whoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. There are only two options for us after death. We either receive judgment for the way that we have lived, and we will be judged against the perfect standard of goodness. We'll have the most fair trial in the history of the universe, and we will be found utterly and clearly guilty. And we shall bear the just punishment for our rebellion against a good God forever. Or we can escape that judgment by hiding into Christ, clothed in Christ, who was judged for us. Instead of us, he was judged in our place that we might be spared this judgment and enter eternal life, which is life the way it was always meant to be lived. It is abundant life. It is life forever. It is the way the world actually should be made perfect. You can have that life forever. I heard a story one time about hikers who were in the middle of the woods and uh, uh, they found themselves up against a massive forest fire. And they started running to get away from the fire, but they quickly realized they were not going to be able to outrun the blaze. It was catching up to them. It was, uh, the fire was on their hills. And they thought that they were going to die because they could not outrun the fire. And then one of the guys noticed that up ahead, some, some sparks had must have flown in front of them. And there was a, an, an area, a circle that had already been burnt up. And he knew that their only hope was to hide in the spot that was already consumed. To hide in the spot that had already been condemned. And so they do. They get in that spot and they lay down and they huddle together. And the blazing inferno comes and it goes right around them. Because that spot was already consumed and already condemned. You see, it is the same for us. Judgment is coming. And you cannot outrun it. The only hope you have 
is to hide in the one who is already condemned for you. Hide in the one that was already consumed for you. And when you hide in him, the fires of judgment will go right around you. Because he was condemned in your place. You can know for sure, for certain, that God loves you. Because he didn't just say it, he proved it in sending his son to die on the cross for you. And we can know that this is all true because he didn't stay dead. But he lives. He was raised from the dead to live forever. And the evidence for that is another sermon for another day, but is overwhelming. It's true. It's all true. Sometimes it might seem too good to be true, but it is true. There are some of you in this room right now, and you have never truly believed into Christ and thrown yourself onto him. You've been religious, you've believed in God, you've been in church, you like church, you're a good person, but you've never thrown yourself into Christ and believed that he's your only hope for salvation. You've kind of just kind of believed and sort of, you know, thought you're a good person and just kind of hoping for the best. Stop that. Stop it. That's not true. That's you believing what you want to be true. And it's a lie. If you want to be saved, you want to be, be spared the wrath of God, you have to hide in the one who was already condemned for you. You've, most of us in this room have done it. You're not alone. We at one point hadn't done it either. The only thing in your way, the only thing barring your access is not your sin, but is your own stubbornness. So cast all of that aside this morning and come receive Christ. Believe on him and be changed forever to be saved, to have eternal life that starts now and never ends. Or perish forever. That never ends. There are some of you in this room, and you you believed, you've believed into Christ, but man, you still struggle. Like, you cannot let go of sins of your past. You cannot let go of mistakes you have made. You cannot let go of things whispered in your head. And you lay there at night and you just think, man, I don't really think God loves me. And you're trying to muster up all of this, you know, whatever to feel good enough about yourself. But you don't think he loves you. And you got to stop subjectively thinking that he loves you based on your performance this week or how much you believe this week or whatever. And you got to start looking to a cross and an empty tomb and not you. You can be free from the burdens of guilt and shame and doubt and sorrow over whether or not God loves you. You can be free from all that junk. Just look to the cross and stop looking to you. He doesn't love you because you're good. He chose to love you when you were jacked up. You didn't get worse. He always knew who you were. And still he went to the cross. Don't you see he loves you? He proved it. So look to him. Finally, there are some of you in this room, you've believed this message. This message we call the gospel, the good news. And I want to challenge you this week. There are people in your life who have not had the privilege and the access you've had to hear this. Clearly, like you have in your life. And this week, I want to challenge you to pray and to look and to observe, who can I share this with this week? Who can I share this simple message? Nathan said something to me this morning, really profound, really thoughtful. I thought it was really good. He said, you know what? We're not called to make converts. The Bible doesn't call us to convert people. The The Bible calls us to share with people, to be a witness to people. You might share the gospel with a thousand people and none of them believe and you have done your job. 
Your job is not to save them. Your job is to give them the only message that they can believe on and be saved. And so my challenge to you this week, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, pray for boldness and courage and get over the social stigma and go share the gospel with someone this week. Don't just invite them to church. That's not sharing the gospel with them. Tell them about Jesus and how he's changed your life. Tell them. So, if you do not know Jesus this morning, I'm going to stand right over there while we sing this song. Stop wrestling in your mind. Stop playing games. Get out of your own way. And come up here and say, Brent, I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I want to follow Jesus and it's confusing. Let's walk through that together. You ain't got to have all the answers. Let's walk through that together. But all you have to do is throw yourself at his mercy and I'll show you how to do that. If you're here this morning and you're just struggling with knowing that he loves you and you want me to pray with you, I'd love to do that. If you want me to pray for boldness and courage that you might share the gospel with somebody, I'd love to do that. You just need to stand and sing to Jesus. Do that. But respond however he would call you this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. And we love you because you first loved us. And you gave your son to make all things right between us and you. We've rebelled against you. We've grieved your heart. We've disappointed you. We've insulted you. We've, we've done all these things wrong. We're broken. We're sinful to our very core. There is no hope in us getting better to make it right. But you made a way by giving your most prized possession for us. And so, Father, would you take that truth and let it worm its way deep into our hearts. And, Father, for the people here this morning who don't know you, don't trust you, have not been saved, who have not given their life to you and been transformed, God, give them the courage this morning to come up and, and say, Brent, I need that. I thought I had it, but I don't. Or, you know, whatever the case may be, I need that. Give them the courage this morning to do that, Father. For those that are struggling, to, to, they're yours, but they just don't believe you really love them. They, they struggle with that. God, show them a vision of the cross this morning that removes all of those doubts. And God, give us the courage and the boldness to share this message with others this week. Father, we love you so much. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. All people said, let's stand together.